0: Good evening, and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from rainy, rainy, rainy Swansea, and with me, as always, is
1: perspiring immensely in this unbearable <laughs> New York heat. Brian, that's um, because of ginger. Is frighteningly hot here.
0: Yeah, that's that's the ginger problem.
1: Well, it's everybody's problem. They're telling people not to leave their houses, and if you do, wear a hat. I mean, we're in the. Severe hat emergency mask. heat heat index.
0: Wear a hat and a mask.
1: Well, always wear the mask, yeah.
0: Yeah. Normally, people don't tell you to wear a hat and a mask because that can lead to somebody thinking that you're being a bit dodgy. But yeah. please, 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 please wear a hat. Don't Everybody's asked me to
1: wear a mask ever since that Eyes Wide Shut bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a disturbing thought for you, isn't it, Laurie?
0: Yeah. That's very disturbing. <laughs> and now your mother's going to be like, "Yeah, that was very disturbing." Well, Brian. Why? Why ho- did you? Hoping my out? mother
1: doesn't know that movie or look it up. Unfortunately, she did <laughs> look up Urban Dictionary things listening to that
0: episode. <laughs> I know she hates you forever.
1: <laughs> oh, so uh, yeah, we uh, we've been busy, busy folks. We got uh, you know, we just put up the uh, the the Genghis Khan show, which is already getting great feedback.
0: Oh, fantastic! Uh, anything that stands out, or is it too early to tell at the moment?
1: Uh, the, well, we've gotten but mostly little short things about wow, great episode, that was incredible. Uh, I had no idea type of comments. So hopefully we'll get some more, uh, more in depth <laughs> feedback soon. But uh, we got a great show tonight.
0: We do indeed.
1: We are doing one of the topics that you pitched in our idea when we were coming up with a, a list of ideas for dream shows.
0: Yes.
1: You pitched HG Wells.
0: I did indeed. He was a phenomenal figure of Victorian society. He wrote in probably one of my favorite um eras of writing because everybody was being very serious and writing very somber realistic novels because they were concerned about what was going to happen next because Queen Victoria was getting older um, and it was pretty much getting to the end of her time and everybody was worrying about it and that's when you have Joseph Conrad ending Heart of Darkness with the horror, the horror and so you had these fantastic novels again equally as bleak you know because they're all about society being a bit rubbish. But getting better through coming together and everything. And But, you know, it's one of the first proper prolific science fiction writers, I think,
1: for me. Him and Jules Verne, yeah. Yes. But yes. we actually have um, Charles Keller from the H.G. Wells Society will be joining us in a little bit.
0: He will. But I have got something to tell you. You know, I was telling you about that Bram Stoker bobblehead. yes. Well, it arrived. There was a slight delay on it, I think because of COVID and, you know, the, the Royal Mail wiping down everything that comes from America. And, and I, so I let Dacre Stoker know that it had arrived. And he goes, oh, thank God. I was wondering what was taking it so long. And then we were talking a little bit and then he goes, well, it might be the case of um, the dead don't travel so fast when they're a bobblehead. And that made me <laughs> laugh. I laughed harder than maybe I should have, but I thought just, that was just a perfect joke.
1: And how does it look?
0: It is fantastic. I'll have to put, I'll post some pictures up of it. Please.
1: Yes, you're going to have to post pictures on our social media sites, which we should give. Yes, now. we
0: should. Um, Facebook is, um, is our group is History Ramblings with uh, Lauren and Brian, and Instagram is at History Ramblings.
1: And on um uh... You can reach us on Twitter at TAHistory or History TA. It actually works both ways. Join our, you know, subscribe, uh, like us on Facebook, follow us. And, of course, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And you could drop us an email, too. People still do use email. And our email address is trans.history.rambling at gmail.com.
0: Mostly people use the um, email to tell us Brian is obnoxious.
1: That's true. That's what we get there. But we don't get a lot of emails. We get more comments on the other social media sites. But, you know, feel free to email us and comment on the sites. Do anything you want. You know, give us suggestions for shows you'd like to hear, topics you'd like to hear us discuss, bedtime stories you want Lauren to read.
0: Yes, I will read them. As long as they're copyright free and nobody gets arrested.
1: So, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna break the rules of podcasting, and I'm gonna actually discuss something that we talked about off air before we started recording today. Apparently, your nephews are now knocking each other's teeth out.
0: Oh, yeah. First off, funny. I'm proud of them. <laughs> They were fighting over Fortnite, as they're always fighting over Fortnite. And the youngest nephew, who we do affectionately call Ronnie Cray in our family, because he's a bit, of, yeah, he, he he could be a boxer. Um, he's gonna he's gonna write. He's got a lovely left hook. Well, as was displayed this afternoon when he chipped my eldest nephew's tooth. <laughs> it's not funny, Brian. I I didn't know what to do.
1: I think it's wonderful. Um. <laughs>
0: It's it's a, it's his adult tooth, Brian.
1: My mother right now is thinking if I had a nickel for every time one of my sons chipped other son's teeth.
0: I thought. Well, the thing is, is the dentists are closed here. Um, it's very difficult to get an appointment. They're only seeing you for certain types of emergencies because they they're not able to use um, the, the traditional drilling tools. They're doing everything by um, by high pressure water and you know air so that's how they're doing all the fillings and everything and I thought how am I going you know if he needs to go to the dentist he's gonna have to go to the really scary one in the hospital and even then and then I was just like oh no so in the end I had um, I I I uh, he, I think it's, he's lucky though. He was in pain for a little bit, but then he said the pain went away, and he's not. He's he's had a drink of milk, and he's eaten his food, and he seems to be all right.
1: Yeah, tell him to keep it like that. It makes him look mean.
0: Well, I I, I don't. Well, it's only a it's it's a, only a little chip.
1: Oh, then tell him to stop whining. <laughs> So that's our public it, service announcement for the day folks. Keep your kids away from Fortnite.
0: Yeah, please do. Yes.
1: You've been uh, have been able to have any fun during uh, any, any any I know some things were opening up over there.
0: Um well in England pubs have opened uh for table service. And I think restaurants um, in Wales, is slightly different because we have slightly different rules. Um, pu- some pubs are opening their beer gardens, um, and restaurants, if they have outside serving capabilities, are allowed to serve outside, but nothing inside yet.
1: Would you risk it though? In- um, no, no, because
0: you don't know. Like, it's it's. I'm sure these companies have fantastic cleanliness things as well. But the thing is, is is you're not having to just... It's like I've got confidence in the companies to do the right thing because, you know, when you go to a restaurant now, you have to give your phone number. And if there's any outbreak of COVID and you are potentially involved in that, they've got to contact you. So they will be doing everything. Well, that's the thing.
1: It only takes one schmuck to sneeze.
0: Yes, that's what... That's what I mean. You're not just having to have faith in the servers in the company who will be fab, but you've got, to, you've got to have faith in the general public. And that's where, I, that's where I'm like, no.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a big negative. Yeah. Yeah, here uh, they're opening up things, you know, f- far more than they should. Some states are, uh, you know, they open up stuff, and all of a sudden the state has this crazy spike in COVID cases. Wow, shocking. You know, Texas and Florida and all these states are in emergency now.
0: Well, the thing with Florida, that's the, that's the thing as well. There are movies being
1: released. All I know, people, is keep your masks on, socially distance. You know, yeah, it's inconvenient and it sucks. But if we don't do it, we're going to be stuck in this situation for years and years and years.
0: Oh, well, to be fair, we probably... It, COVID is probably here to stay in the same way that measles and stuff like that are here to stay, like rubella and stuff. There will be a vaccine, but it will never truly go away.
1: Yeah, and now China's got the bubonic plague back.
0: That That is not the worst type of plague to get,
1: though. No, but still, I mean, we were talking about doing a show on the bubonic plague a few months ago. Now I'm like, no, no, because it's here. I don't want to talk about it.
0: <laughs> well, it... I mean as long as you get antibiotics within the f- first 24 hours you'll be all right.
1: I am going to make fuck the plague shirts.
0: <laughs> Every time the plague.
1: And I think you should wear one next time you're at the at the at the museum or you know when you go back to university just wear a big fuck the plague shirt.
0: <laughs> we, and and well, the thing is, is we in Swansea University they ended the year with a measles outbreak, but that's not uncommon in a university. No. Um. So when when COVID first came around, there was this meme going around uh, saying um, that COVID was measles two electric boogaloo COVID edition, <laughs> and oh. and then. And then it all got a bit serious, and you know, because I wasn't too worried in the beginning. I was like, kind of like, oh, I, I'd rather me get it than my nephews get it, and that, that is still true. But now I'm like, I don't want it. No, I don't.
1: I don't, I don't, I don't want it either. You know, because no. uh, some
0: people have been saying that the effects last for months, and then there are, and then there's some doctors saying that they're not quite sure if, in some serious cases, that the that it. it you know that it's life altering
1: yeah i don't i don't want it no you know
0: well here you'd be and because of your diabetes you'd be in the at-risk category so you'd be having to stay in forever and ever and ever
1: yeah yeah it would suck
0: yeah you'd be um shielding until august that's when the shield of people
1: yeah it's 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 brutal but we should talk about more fun things well fuck the plague. <laughs>
0: um which one, Brian? All of them. Because we've got COVID, then they had avian flu in China, and then that went away. And then they had swine flu. Um and they were like, Oh yeah, but it's this new swine flu which mutates faster and it's a new strain.
1: You're not making me feel any better, Lauren.
0: Um, I've had swine flu. <laughs> it's not nice.
1: You're supposed to comfort me, Lauren.
0: (laughs) And now, and now we've got the black death.
1: (sighs) What are you doing to me, Lauren?
0: (laughs) It's like two thousand. It's like somebody's playing Jumanji and they need to finish the game now. Remember when Kurt
1: and Krista were on and they point out that whenever you start saying my name, that means you're mad. (laughs) (laughs) And now here I am going, Lauren. Lauren, we've we've changed roles. (laughs)
0: But it is like somebody's playing a big game of Jumanji. Yeah,
1: it it sucks. It sucks, and uh, I'm not a fan.
0: It'll be fine. It will be fine.
1: Eventually.
0: Well, you know, you can't go anywhere because Cleo needs you.
1: Well, I'm just pissed off now because it's, you know, so hot here.
0: (laughs) I would be annoyed if it, it, I get annoyed when it's hot. And It's...
1: it's been that way for over a week, and the show's no end in sight all the way through, like, next week. It's like this bizarre, freaky heat wave. I know I, I know I told you about it uh, when I emailed you a couple days ago. Yeah. That, to put it in perspective, the area I live in, it's very, very rare in history that we get above 85 degrees. And all last week and this week have been, like, 95. And we're not at the peak of summer yet. So we've already had over a dozen days this year, ten degrees higher than our high is ever expected to be and we are haven't you hit wishing the peak you had snow yet.
0: again? Are you wishing you had snow again, like when you randomly had snow?
1: Yes, yes that, I wish I had a funny. snow cone right now
0: what what what's your flavors what's your What's your flavor in
1: the snow cone?: either cherry or orange?
0: Because we don't have those so much. We have slush puppies, which is kind of the same thing.
1: Kind of the same, but... Yeah. I would so, I would dunk my man bits in a snow cone right now. Please don't. It's so hot. <laughs>
0: to stop the plague, Brian will dunk his man bits. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Brian's nutters are going into a snow cone to stop the plague. That'll be like the new ice bucket <laughs> challenge.
0: Uh, who would you nominate?
1: Uh, uh Ansel Birch. <laughs> <laughs> Nominated.
0: Poor Ansel. No, what because you if I said Neil's
1: story, he'd do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he would.
1: <laughs> well, we, we really should get on to our day in history because we're going to have a great guest, and if we keep talking about my nuts and snow cones, my mother's going to be really mad. <laughs>
0: It's your turn
1: to go first. Yeah, but you got to give me a nice deep today in history. Okay.
0: Today in history. Yes, 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 yes.
1: Ah, yes, today in history. You know, this is a tough one because there's a lot of things that happened today in history, Lauren. Yes. I mean, I could have gone with, you know, uh, the execution of the Lincoln assassins.
0: Oh. Or- the alleged one because isn't there a story about a man that was claiming to be
1: Yes um, but I figure if I went well, with that one we'd have to talk about David Harold would get us talking about Tumblr. So I don't wanna do that. <laughs> <All
0: right. laughs> we'll save that. We'll save that for another time,
1: another show. I could have talked about nineteen twenty eight when the greatest invention of all time was invented. Sliced bread. I'm not kidding. The first sliced bread was sold in nineteen twenty
0: eight. I know, but
1: But I think I'm going to go with one that's very near and dear to my heart, because I am a huge fan of, of Jack Webb and everything he did. And in 1949, today in history, 1949, the radio drama Dragnet premiered on NBC Radio, spawning three radio sequels and two television series, all produced and written and starring Jack Webb.
0: I remember being shown an episode of dragnet when i was studying um film studies for uh, a unit on american cinema amazing
1: oh the 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 1950 series was a very dark and gritty cop drama and the 19 late 60 series was this very garish almost parody because it was all against hippies and pot and it was just ridiculous but For people who only know the 60s series and laugh at it, no, no, go listen to the old radio shows and watch the 50s television series, some of the best television and radio ever done. Jack Webb, Dragnet, premiered today, 1949.
0: Well, I've got one for you, um, Brian. Um, In 1921, the um, Chicago White Sox uh, baseball team were accused of throwing the World Series.
1: Yes, the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Yeah. We did that uh, great episode with uh, John Thorne, the Major League Baseball historian, all about that.
0: Yes, so I thought you'd appreciate that.
1: Oh, that's (laughs) one of my favorite topics in all of history. And everybody should go back into the archives of the show and listen to that episode.
0: Yes. And also listen to Ansel's episode. They're really good. Yes. (laughs)
1: And especially since he's been nominated to dunk his nuts in the snow cone.
0: To stop the plague.
1: To stop the plague. But, hey, how did you like the sound effect I put in for the uh, the, the Skype machine last week?
0: That was amazing.
1: I think I'm going to rev up the Skype machine now <laughs> and see if we can get him on the line. What do you think?
0: You should do. And I think the Skype machine, HT Wells, would love the Skype machine.
1: So is it guest o'clock?
0: It is indeed, guest. the clock.
1: All right, rev up the Skype machine. Ah, and I got him. Lauren, I've got Charles on the line with us. Now, Charles is the webmaster and a member of the H.G. Wells Society, which I will add a link in the show description to the website, and we are going to be discussing... All Things Herbert George Wells. Charles, welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. We're uh we're both great fans of of, of Wells, obviously. Yes, indeed. And uh you know, I I was thrilled to find that the H.G. Wells Society actually still existed.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, we we've been around a long time and uh, this is actually the second permutation, if you will, of the society. The current society was founded in 1960 and uh, has been going ever since. There was one that formed not long after his death. I I believe they called themselves Cosmopolis. (laughs) But anyway, they didn't last all that long, and uh, the current society has been going ever since. (laughs) Sixty.
1: You know, more... Societies like this should be around for for different uh, authors and people who were so important not only to, to the literature but to society. Like Wells was,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, Wells's reach during his time was significant uh, and to a degree that's uh, underappreciated today. I mean, in his time, at his at his peak, he could command audiences with anyone from Vladimir Lenin to FDR to whoever everybody everybody was willing to talk with him um, he was just he's just one of the big guys
1: <laughs> yeah to Orson Welles which we'll get into a little later but
2: right right yeah that, that's a fun one I that, that's always good <laughs> yeah now
1: how did you get so involved and interested in HG Wells?
2: Well, you kind of just said it. It, it was Orson Welles. Uh, when I was a, a child back in 1900 and Frozen Stiff, <laughs> my parents had a record album of Orson Welles' broadcast. And it captivated me uh, to the point that I can basically recite it from memory today. I mean, I wore this thing out and drove my parents crazy. And by the time I got to middle school, uh, I became aware of H.G. Wells. And so I went to the school library and started checking out Wells' books. And, of course, first one I go for is War of the Worlds, and it's still my favorite text of all. There's so much in it that uh, even as I reread it some, well, over 40 years later, every time I pull something else out of it. Um, So that was how I got into Wells. Uh, I joined the Society in 1998. Uh, at the urging of uh, one of my history professors when I was a history undergrad, he he said, look up, he has to have a society, look him up, and and you really should join if if he has one. And so I did, and I joined, and a couple years later they said, hey, you know how to do a few things on the computer, would you run our website? And I said, yeah, sure. So I I started running their website, and uh, then I was coaxed into founding an American chapter of the H.G. Wells Society. And I did that, and it ran for about five years, from 2001 to 2006. Um, But to what you're saying in terms of we wish there were more societies like this out there, absolutely, but I can tell you as someone who's tried to start one and maintain one, it is really hard to get people to subscribe to something as almost esoteric as a literary society in the 21st century. Everyone's used to just going online and getting what they want and going away. I think a lot of people like our Facebook page and consider themselves affiliated with the HGL Society. <laughs> it's not the way it is at all. You know, we throw the barest minimum up on our uh, Facebook page uh, just to let people know this is what's going on. These are the benefits of membership. Um, but... Yeah, it's just, it's, I hope it doesn't die out, and our membership has been increasing lately, which is great, uh, mostly from the other side of the pond, but uh, all the same, there's still a steady influx of North Americans, and not just North Americans, I mean, people from around the world. Our current uh, editor of the Wellsian is Polish, and uh, so, yeah, and we've had members around the world through the years so it's truly an international society which is exactly what wells would have wanted with his view of humanity needing to come together as one he would have loved that so
1: yeah he would have loved the society i don't think he would have loved what's going on in the world today though
2: no i think there would be things that he would find hopeful but uh and other things that he would find familiar. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going on now that have analogs in the past, and he would recognize those things and go, "Hey, I, I warned you about this. What are you doing?" You know? <laughs> yeah.
1: And it and it is interesting. You said uh, there's so few societies. I mean, I, I know of there's a Bram Stoker Society, and I know there is. Uh, Conan Doyle has several, but you know, uh-huh. Wells is among the few and Lauren of course is thinking of course that the you know it's bigger on that side of the pond because they're more literate than Americans she likes to point that out
0: oh no I don't <laughs> stop, stop, oh, well, stop saying things like that <laughs> to people
1: I always get Lauren this is intro. Why
0: we, this is we'll why always... we get Emails in saying you're obnoxious, Brian. <laughs> this, this needs to stop. You tried to do this before, and the guest was going to give me a massive telling off until I interrupted and said he's just joking. <laughs> he whined. It's just such a wind up What did you notice Lauren,
1: that I did get an American from the society on so that we're not outnumbered this time?
2: Just remember what Churchill said two people separated by a common language. That's basically it, you know. <laughs>
1: no in 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 reality um you know i like to make fun of lauren we love to have fun like that but lauren <laughs> is the the main reason we're doing an hg wells one when we were pitching ideas for shows coming up she's like oh hg wells we got to do hg wells so i know lauren's a big fan of wells
2: yeah that's great and it's it's funny. it's funny as his as his work has has come into the public domain there does seem to have been an, an uptick in interest in him, not just from the entertainment sector. Obviously, there's there's a lot. That, there always really have been Wells movies in the works or being talked about, but there's a there's a lot going on currently. There in Britain, they had a, a at least two incarnations of the War of the Worlds. Um, neither one of them got very good reviews from some of my colleagues, but. That's his maybe. Um, you yeah, know, we had the the new Invisible Man, which was a complete rewrite, essentially, from what I understand. I haven't seen it. Um, but uh, he's, he's always in the forefront of people's minds. And of course, when you say H.G. Wells, to most people, they think of the sci-fi, the, the scientific romances, essentially the first 10 years of his work. From around 1894 to just past the turn of the century. So, you know, we're talking about the time machine, the invisible man, and uh, the island of Dr. Moreau, the war of the worlds, and uh, uh, the first man in the moon. It was the big five, essentially, that everybody knows. But, I mean, Wells wrote more words than than Shakespeare and Dickens combined, and his, his reach ran from the last decade of the 19th century practically until the day he died in 1946. And a lot of his later work has fallen out of fashion because it was very topical. It was very bound to its time. Um, and so a lot of it didn't date very well. Other things did. But at the same time, you know, he's working outside fiction. He he'd be, he got really tired of being tied to the, the 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 novelist idea, you know, I'm I'm a writer and I write novels. He he, when he wrote novels, he considered them opportunities for social propaganda, and you see the beginnings of that even in the scientific romances. I mean, everything from the time machine all the way through uh, uh, First Men in the Moon. Everything has a socio political undercurrent. You don't have to dig too deep to, to find it, and once you do, you realize how deep it goes. But the genius of it was that, that was there for the people that wanted to explore it, but they were also just great adventure stories. Um, so yeah, that's one of the reasons why those in particular last through until today. The One thing that we're uh, marking is, is that to, these days is the centenary of the outline of history. Which he wrote uh, after the the First World War. Uh, the First World War was, was such a cataclysm, and he was surprisingly in support of it in the very beginning because he saw Imperial Germany as a very real threat, not just to Great Britain. His allegiance was to the world. He thought that that cup crum, cum Kaiser dominance was. A danger to every man, woman, and child on Earth. This saluting habit that they had, and this forced way of living, and and this class-ridden... Uh, um, society. He he's like, he had no had no use for that. So when war broke out, he broke with a lot of his socialist colleagues and said, you know, every we've got to do something about this, and this is our opportunity. The other yeah, Germans have forced this on us, but it is an opportunity to wipe the stain from the face of the earth. And he quarrelled with with uh, so many of his colleagues, from George Bernard Shaw. On down the line, I mean Beatrice and Sidney Webb, his former colleagues in the Fabian Society. I mean, all of them were like, "This don't do this. We don't. We don't want to have a war." But Wells is like, "Let's let's smash it all up. Let's make this war so bad and so awful that at the end of it, everyone is going to clamor for a new world culture. We're going to look for a better way, and that way is going to make future war impossible." It's a very idealistic. Uh, Stance to have, and ultimately futile, because you know it, it didn't be didn't take long for him to realize that even the forces at play during the war were not thinking like him. He was brought in by Lord Northcliffe, who was founder of the Daily Mail, by the way. <laughs> uh, he <laughs> by Lord Northcliffe when he was with the uh, War Cabinet, uh, and hired Wells to lead the the section of uh, German civilian propaganda and. Wells jumped at the chance. He's like, here's an opportunity to more or less extend an olive branch to the German people, let them know we are not fighting them, we're fighting your autocratic head, and after this war is over, you're going to get a fair shake, and we're going to move forward together, but we've got to get rid of these spike helmets and these these goose steppers with the big black boots. I mean, this has got to stop. Well... It wasn't long before he was at loggerheads with Northcliffe and other people in and around the propaganda department because his ideas didn't match. Wells had a more convivial t- or not convivial, but he had a more, more fair-minded tone. And with the British at the time, it was like... The, the, being German was the least fashionable thing in the world. So anything that wasn't 100% let's destroy the Bosch Everybody thought, "Well, what are you doing?" I mean, they're the enemy. We have to destroy them. And so Wells ended up leaving. He he wasn't there in the the propaganda department long, and uh, he ended up leaving to do his own sort of uh, of of propaganda
1: (laughs) through novels. Yeah, I was going to say he didn't give up propaganda. (laughs) No,
2: definitely not. And you know, Mister Britling sees it through. Was in its time one of the most popular novels, and it it addressed the First World War, the Great War, in very human terms. And Wells went through his own issues during the war. You know, He declared himself an atheist when he was younger, but then went through this flirtation with the notion of, of a god, and not, not the Judeo-Christian god that we think of, but uh, what he called a captain of mankind. And uh, he, he liked, this is difficult to parse, he liked... Christianity's message, but he he did not like the way it was administered. Let's put it that way. Um, so he had this he had this momentary flirtation with religion during the war that ultimately he abandoned. He came out of it on the other side, you know, agitating for the League of Nations, supporting it as an idea, and then when it came about, it turned out to be this this ridiculous talking shop, full of the same old characters that caused. Trouble in the first place, um, absolutely bent on exacting their revenge or suppressing the you know the the former uh, belligerents. Uh, and Wells is like, this isn't this isn't going to work at all. So um, he eventually turned on that idea, and of course, it ultimately failed because you know, Wilson here in the United States, who had pulled his shenanigans towards the end of the war, essentially. Uh, negotiating directly with the House of the Hohenzollern, over the heads of his allies in in London and in Paris, um, you know he had infuriated people back here in the states by just uh, almost acting like an autocrat by himself. So when Wilson comes back home, having sold the 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 League of Nations idea to the Europeans, he came back home expecting, well, this will be easy, and Congress just looked at him and said, nah. No, we're not going to do that. And so the United States never ratified and never became a full member of the League of Nations. So the whole thing collapsed. Um, At that point, Wells was changing his, his approach to, well, how do I help form a better world? What's at the core of all this hate, division, and misunderstanding? Well, it's a lack of education. And so he had this idea to write an outline of history that would be approachable, by everyone, and give everyone more or less a common footing uh, on the past, and on which they could build a, a better tomorrow. And so, in its time, you know, the outline of history it remained in print long after his death, um, and was continually updated by Raymond Postgate, I think. But uh, anyway, this it was an immensely popular work and sold as much as the Bible, practically, in its own time. And that's why, if you <laughs> you go you go to charity shops. Or uh, you know more used, almost no used bookstores anymore. But if you go to the thrift stores, chances are you're going to find a copy of, of uh, Outline of History <laughs> in the bookshelf somewhere in the back. It's not my Yeah, and I've got several several editions of it, and I don't know why. You really only need one, but they've just kind of accrued <laughs> with me. Um, so that, and then throughout the twenties, you know, Wells was taking on more and more social causes. I mean, the idea of uh, women's suffrage was a really big thing to him, and it's something that he had worked for for many years. And he took on that idea of women's liberation, and uh, you know, ultimately was the, the the movement was successful, fortunately. But Wells was you know, he was an early supporter of that, um, which and, I
1: believe um, is the reason that Lauren. Wanted to do a Wells episode.
2: Ah, okay, okay.
1: Because that's yes. Lauren's specialty and uh, what she's writing a book about.
2: Oh, very nice, very nice. Tell me about it.
0: Um, it's an examination of uh, the suffragette movement from their relationship with the, the criminal justice system. It's about them being arrested, it's about their treatment in prison, and um, what they felt about, their imprisonment and how um, the people that, you know, the warders felt and the doctors felt about imprisoning them and force feeding them. There's quite a lot of information that's come out of it, which isn't very favourable towards the police. Um, Another historian, Fern Riddell, um, uncovered a lot of um, examples of the women being sexually harassed while they were being restrained during the protests and everything. So it it was very important to have male backing like HG Wells. It would have meant a lot to have that support.
2: Yeah, and and certainly that movement did get a lot of, of support from people like Wells, as well as I'm sure you've got things about Rebecca Weston there who was, you know, yes. one of Wells's one of his uh, well, let's just call her a close confidant.
0: <laughs> yes. She was she we was were a friends. very they were friends.
2: They were, they were very friendly, and you know, and uh, Anthony West was their their offspring. And Anthony West went on to write about his father and had his own had his own nice uh, career. But yeah, you're right. Well, people like Wells, Bertrand Russell, uh, of Beatrice and Sidney Webb, all of those people would figure into the suffragette movement um, there and here. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I, my family and I went to the Missouri Penitentiary on a tour a couple of years ago. And it was just on a lark. We're in Jefferson City, which is the capital of Missouri. And uh, we're walking through the halls. And it's, it's the dis-u- disused portion of, of the prison. It's the first. It was the, the earliest incarnation of, of that penitentiary. And it was the largest penitentiary west of the Mississippi for a time. And so, so many people were interred there. And I'm walking down the hall, and I look over, and there's a picture of Emma Goldman. <laughs> like wait what And I, di- I didn't know that when she was Sentenced for her uh, Supposed sedition trying to get Soldiers to not register for the draft During the great war she ended up being Imprisoned and sent to uh, the penitentiary In Missouri so Emma was here um, So yeah that's just Kind of a, a funny aside I have no idea what my point Was with that other than just to say it
1: <laughs> Other than it's a great story It is a great story <laughs> Yeah we um it's it's so funny that we think of Wells primarily for, like you said, the, the, the Big Five, The Invisible Man, Dr. Moreau, uh, Time Machine, War of the Worlds. But you know, he wrote more sociology books and history books and, and political books and, you know, articles than, than, than you could shake a stick at. I mean, it, it, why do you think, I mean, other than the fact that those novels were so successful... And you know Hollywood jumped all over his work. Why do you think he's not as remembered for these other things now?
2: Well, because a lot of those things were topical, and they were—I don't, don't know if I don't know if I want to use the word episodic, but they were—they were things that ended up being resolved in, in more or less, more or less. You know the struggle of women goes on, but in terms of what his initial thrust was to, for the vote and for equality, and obviously the fair pay thing hasn't been, or equal pay hasn't been resolved. But by and large, other voices came in um, that were as respected as Wells, and uh, you know the guy's the guy's interest was manifold and he would go from one thing to the next. <laughs> and so, and it, a lot of it, his writing was honestly uneven. Some of it is just like, oh, my God, really? I mean, there's a lot of his books that I've never managed to slog through, and uh, I, I feel like I should, but some of them are just, they're not necessary, I suppose is the word. I mean, there, there was a joke going around the society, like there's like three of us that have read Boone, and, you know, and I'm not one of them, you know, but you know, like I said, he wrote more words than Shakespeare and Dickens combined. So to sit down and write every, or to read every word that Wells wrote, oh, good luck.
1: Yeah, he was prolific. Um,
2: yeah. He
1: he fascinates me as a character. Um and, and and I'm going to you know much to the dismay of of, of yourself probably. I, I want to <laughs> focus a bit on the big novels. No, that's fine with me. <laughs> because I don't you know I don't even think most people realize that all these things were written by him. You know everybody knows War of the Worlds. Everybody knows The Invisible Man. Most people know the Time Machine, and most people know um, the Island of Doctor Moreau. But I, I don't, well, not even Most Island of Dr. Morrow. That's probably the lesser of them. But I, I don't think people realize this was all the same guy who wrote this. Um, yeah, in a very short span, yeah. Or, or <laughs> a film nut like myself would, you know, things to come, of course.
2: Right, right. And
1: it, like you said, that was in a very short span. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and it's funny the the recognition of Wells is is uneven. Uh, another quick anecdote in the mid 90s, because War of the Worlds is sort of my touchstone text. is like going to Woking outside London. That was like the holy land for me, and you know, seeing the house where he and Jane lived while he wrote it. That was that was a life goal. And while I was – when my wife and I arrived, we're walking down Mayberry Road looking for this house. I had really no idea what I was looking for uh, because the the photos were always sketchy. This is the 90s. The internet isn't really coherent yet. And so I'm, I'm still groping about like it, it could have been any point earlier in the 20th century. I'm just a tourist and met a man – uh, walking down the road and I said I'm looking for the H.G. Wells house and he's like oh I think that's closer to the post office down here so he walked with us and we talked and he said and I told him my interests and he said oh yeah H.G. Uh, Wells didn't he write uh, didn't he write 1984 Yeah. Well, no, that that was George Orwell. So even there, in the heart of Wells Country, there's there's confusion and uh, there's you know incomplete knowledge, and uh, it's everywhere. (laughs) And it's just because so much time has elapsed, and you know he's just not on the tip of everyone's tongue anymore.
1: No, and 1984 is certainly not something he would have written.
2: No. no, that was it was actually an answer to Wells. Orwell and yeah. Wells were friends, but they were almost frenemies, really. Uh, and in fact, the the we in the society, we had a a joint uh, uh conference with the Orwell Society last year, and it, it involved each side giving papers that that were that connected Wells and Orwell, and some, I wasn't there, but from what I understand, some of the same old arguments erupted. And it's like even after their death, we, their representatives, are still bickering with one another about certain views and what this meant and what that meant and why was why did he say that and couldn't he have possibly seen that this was this and not that? Yeah. So Wells and Orwell were they were they were peas in a pod, but it was it was a, it was an odd relationship as many of the literary relationships were at the time. I mean, when you go back and read some of the public arguments that someone like George Bernard Shaw had with Wells, it <laughs> so, it was vicious. and some of it would come off as like, well, I guess we're going to war then. But in actuality, the men were friends, and they could still sit down and have dinner together and enjoy one another's company. But when it came to ideas, that's when it became gladiatorial, well, and and that's, it,
1: and that's where I hate to say it, but you know Orwell's uh, dystopian versus Wells's utopia came to pass. We've entered a time where people who disagree can't sit down and talk anymore. Yeah, everything's exactly. polarized, and that's
2: very Orwellian. Yeah, that's very Orwellian. Uh, that's not that's not the war, That's not the future that Wells had imagined. And Wells was open about the idea of utopia. He's like, look, utopia means nowhere. This is an impossible idea, uh, and, and you, if you one text I do recommend everyone read is a modern utopia It was written in the teens, and it describes a a well a modern utopia. Uh, it's loosely based on uh, uh, Saint Thomas uh, Moore's uh, Utopia, but it's kind of a rewriting of that. But um, I guess you can look at it as the same way the, the new Invisible Man is a complete rewriting of of Wells' Invisible Man. Wells did that with the modern utopia, and he describes this world that, in a lot of ways, it it strikes me as not being too terribly different from today, but in other ways, yeah, there's a, there's a long way to go. And even then, he's saying, you know, this culture and society isn't perfect, and it's never going to be perfect. And to your point, uh, in terms of of censorship it's getting really bad now i mean like frighteningly bad the cancel culture is way out of control and i don't know what we're going to do about it
1: well no and it the, the problem is both sides are extremes and you know the cancel culture extreme left against the really um divisive far right all the people in the center don't seem to have a voice anymore.
2: No. no Which is really it, the it majority is, it, of it's a, people. Yeah, it's, it's arguing over everyone's head. And it's an argument for supremacy. I mean, full stop. You know, we, we've noticed that there is a petition on to have a, a statue of Wells removed from, uh, from Woking. And because he had views that, that, aren't congruent with our values and mores today. Well, of course not. He was a product of his time. And that, even if you say that in public these days, that can get you attacked. The idea that, that when I was a history undergrad, my first class was historiography. And I'll never forget day one sitting down and the old school professor said, there's some rules that we historians must live by. And the first one, he presented it all biblically. He said, the first one is, thou shalt not judge historical persons, places, or events by contemporary values and mores. Now, that's not to say that we can't individually say, okay, well, this guy was actually a terrible person because he held this li- this belief throughout his life. Um, it is true that there were things that were said and believed early on that something like eugenics that he later rebuked, uh, and other things that that he thought that would be questioned today, he either changed his mind or he yeah, just came out and rebuked them and said, "I don't believe that. This is not this is not the way it is." But the culture today doesn't seem to want to accept that people can change, and uh, it's it's a very puritanical view. It reminds me of of the 1980s when it was when the shoe was on the other foot. And it was uh, the religious people wanting to purify culture, especially here in the United States with Alan Tipper Gore's uh, Parents Music Resource, Resource Center, the PMRC. We're going to clean up the music industry for the sake of our children's future. And you know, even back then, it smacked of censorship, even though they said, well, we're not actually trying to censor. Well, like I said, the shoe's on the other foot now, and it's coming from the other side. And... Rather than having a theological basis, it's now, uh, it, almost, it strikes me as like a political religion. Well, it is. And, and it's, it is. it's frightening. It's really frightening.
1: I mean, and I'm someone, in, and we, 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 we very rarely go into politics on the show, but I'll admit, yes. I've always been a very left-leaning centrist my whole life. Um, you know, fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's we've gotten to a point that, like I said, both sides are th- the extremes on both sides that really don't represent either side. Right? Are right. the only in ones the, you're hearing?
2: No way right. do they represent everyone. Yeah, but they're willing to to, to smash up things and make a scene. And, you know, once they do that, the media comes running, because if it bleeds, it leads, right? So, uh, then it gets promulgated throughout the media, and suddenly it looks bigger than perhaps it really deserves.
1: I mean, I'm all for protest. I'm all for discussion. I'm even all for, you know, pointing out things that really should be pointed out. But... Like you said, when someone like Wells they're attacking, even though he himself came out against those things they're attacking him for later, it's like you said, you, people just, and it's both sides. Um, they don't want to hear any excuses.
2: Yeah, it's 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 rather a new thing. I mean, I, I've spent most of my 40 years studying Wells seeing him attacked by the right, and now I'm seeing, seeing him attacked by the left.
1: Well, it's social and media. It's, change just changed, changed the world
2: oh sure sure it, it, it opened lines of communication that, that you know wells had an idea about the world wide web with his world brain idea but not it not anything like what we actually have but it, he knew that opening communication was fraught with difficulty but ultimately it needed to happen if there was going to be understandings between People's, we need to have open communication. This this may just be a, a teething issue for us, um, as as dire as it seems at the moment. Um, and we've just got to be. I did another podcast last week where I was talking about pulling down statues and and the revision of history. Uh, and I used the 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 idea that um, it's okay to disagree with aspects of an, of, of an historical person's character um, but there's a point where you can go damnatio memori which is you know the, the damnation of memory and that leads very directly to the erasure of history. Something on the scale of like the destruction of the library of Alexandria in the 7th century or the destruction of the memory of Akhenaten uh, Amenhotep IV in ancient Egypt, Egypt, which we really didn't know very much about him. We had to back into the knowledge about him because of Carter discovering Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, they did such a thorough job of erasing him from history. It took a long time to resurrect. Uh, that, the memory of that past. And what right did those people have really to do that? Yeah, it was their culture, but we're, when we're t- to me, my personal opinion is when we're talking about something that belongs to the collective human past, nobody has the right to erase anything. For better or for worse, all of these things need to be out there. Now, you have some public representation of an historical figure that has aspects in his character that are unseemly or incongruent with today, I am 100% for adding footnotes, adding a plaque, saying, look, this this was a slaveholder, or this was a slave trader. I'm 100% for that, because I want the truth to be out there. I want all the facts to be out there for everyone to see. Uh, but, especially here in the States, the idea is we have to hide these things away, and I, I don't think it's healthy.
1: No, the only thing uh, in the States that I, I really and, and and this has actually gotten to me in a lot of arguments with people and this is as political as I'm gonna get that I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm okay with tearing down statues of Confederate leaders because you don't usually put up statues in your culture to treasonous losers.
2: Well that's a hundred percent right, and that's exactly what I think too. And um you can't talk about wells without getting political, so you should have known going into this. Yeah. And, and when to... I say
1: losers, I don't mean they're losers <laughs> no, like in they today's sentence. I mean, they lost the war and they, they were treasonous.
0: Right. But Brian, and, and, what uh, about that really bad Confederate one that needs to stay there forever because it's so bad? Well, that one's a, amazing.
1: There should that, be a neon true. sign pointing to that one.
0: Yeah, that, that's, well, yeah that's so good. Yeah.
2: If you add context to whatever it is you're looking at, then I think you've done your bit. Now, when we talk about removing Confederate statues and and memorials, I've been on record for years saying this needed to be done. Move them to museums. Move them to Civil War battlefields. Move them to Confederate cemeteries. Put them in their proper context and add the plaques. Talk about these things in in. In the sober light of 2020, looking back now that we know more than perhaps we did when... And a lot of these statues really aren't all that new, let's be honest. Most of these statues and and monuments are 20th century things. And a lot of them were put there for nasty political reasons. And so absolutely get those down. Keep them down, get them out of there. But... And there's arguments to be made on the artistic merit of, of each one of them. But I'm an appraiser and I work with fine art and I work with uh, uh, historical artifacts. And for me preserving the historical record is is paramount. And even with all the nasty bits, I mean everything should be preserved and properly contextualized because again like I said who who gave us the right to decide what the future gets to remember? No one.
1: No, we should not the world has so warts. warts.
2: Yeah. Yes. And everyone is going to be imperfect. Everyone.
1: Luckily, I don't have any warts now. And after that...
2: <laughs> Did you get that cream? Is that, is that what
1: happened? And after that one, after that conversation, we got to go back to Utopia, and maybe we should discuss Todd Rundgren's Utopia.
2: Oh, I can't discuss that with any kind of authority, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> nah, it's okay. I'm just a fan, so... The, great band. You should listen to them.
2: Yeah, I, did. I worked in a record store in the 80s, and it was all over the place, but it was just never my thing. That's all I can
1: say. <laughs> now, um, back to, 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 to Wells and his pop culture success. Yeah. What did he think? Because he lived into the 40s. So he was there for a lot of his, you know, works being turned into these great films. I know what yeah. he thought about... Uh, war of the world's on the radio show we'll get into that next but
0: i love the radio show
1: yeah, w- yeah. <laughs> what did he think of the uh, hollywood treatment of his works
2: he was never satisfied uh because again when he wrote those novels he had a sociological underpinning which to him was paramount and when hollywood presents them they do a lowest common denominator uh, yeah, a great adventure story that that uh, that'll rile the imagination and appeal to generations of youngsters. Um, and it's fine. I mean, I, I watched he never saw the 53 war of the Worlds. I adore it, even though it has very little to do with the novel. Um, there's something to be gleaned from all of them. Now, you 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 brought up things to come earlier, from 1936, the funny thing was, he was directly involved with that film. Yeah, he wrote the screenplay, didn't he? Yeah, he wrote the screenplay, and he also, he was on set, and he was, he worked directly with Alexander Korda um, on the early production aspects, and even with the, the composer of the music, he worked with, he worked with him but wells was he was really good at broad sweeps but he was lousy with details hmm. and he had seen uh, fritz lang's uh, metropolis and he despised it he thought it was terrible and uh he, he wh- i remember one of the production notes he sent to the crew he said you know these are the things that i'm going for roughly and he ended with something like and if you remember you uh, uh, if you remember metropolis just do the opposite of whatever was in that. <laughs> it was just, he was so disgusted by uh, by Metropolis that when he had his, the, the chance to make his own film, it was going to be very different. And I'll tell you to this day, I love watching it, but I'm probably the only person I know that loves watching it.
1: Oh, I, I love
2: it. it is such a preachy slog to get through. I get it. I mean, he's just so heavy-handed throughout with all the preaching. Because he thought this was his chance to forward Wells'ism, which was his own permutation of socialism, because you know, as a socialist throughout his life, that was what he thought was going to cure all mankind's ills. And he, he was—he despised Marx, absolutely despised Marx and Marxism. Thought it was absolutely the wrong thing. And he had devised his own socialism that came from Henry Saint Simon, Robert Owen, sources like that. You know, the same sources that Marx would draw on, but. Wells's was, of course, it was different. His, his was better. <laughs> so things to come was an opportunity for him to, to push his vision out and hope that it caught on. <laughs> of course, it didn't. But, you know, the, the special effects that were in there, they were pretty special, if you ask me, especially for 1936.
1: Well, you know, <laughs> there's no accounting for taste in some respects because... I understand why he hated Metropolis because it really is the epitome of everything he despised about yeah. the working man and the way they were treated and the corporations. And, and But then again, that's what Fritz Lang was pointing out. So he should have loved it because it was almost like someone exposing what he's been preaching. However, yeah. you know, <laughs> things to come didn't come near the technical quality of Metropolis.
2: Mm, no, no. I, I, I think the other thing that he would have despised about uh, Metropolis, and I don't know that he's ever said this, is when you think about it and you think about the the workers' conditions and, and how they were cloistered, they're essentially the Selenites in The First Men in the Moon, yeah. where they're born-bred for specific purposes. And that's it. And they serve the greater good. And with no kind of individuality or personality, they're just there to serve... The, the, the whole and that's kind of what metropolis was just a little bit different so it is it is odd that he didn't see that but there again there's there. in terms of competition maybe he saw fritz lang as as possible competition i don't i don't really know but or maybe his, he saw
1: that they were kind of ripping him off and not getting credit
2: I, I, I kind of doubt that, honestly. I think he was just, he, he saw the whole package and went, this is absurd. And so then he <laughs> went off and did things to come, which, of course, none of that's absurd, no. right? <laughs> <laughs> Great but,
1: costumes, uh, though.
2: Oh, fantastic, yeah. And and it's fun to think that uh, that when you're watching that film, Wells was very likely on the set somewhere just off camera as they were filming. That's always fun for me.
1: <laughs> well, that, that's the amazing thing about someone like Wells. And, you know, we talk about a lot of these authors throughout history. We have audio recordings and, and film footage of Wells. I mean, he's not this mysterious historical figure that we just have to imagine. We have stuff. We can go out and look at him and hear that funny voice of his.
2: Oh, Lord, yeah. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. Lauren, have you ever seen Things to Come?
0: No, I haven't.
1: Oh, you gotta watch it. I will. It's wonderful. Like I said, I have. But I have. Oh, I have
0: ahead. to say, H. Wells' HG Wells's voice isn't as funny as Arthur Conan Doyle's voice.
1: That's true. So, you know. But to be fair, Conan Doyle's <laughs> voice we only really have on um, wax cylinders, right?
0: No, no, no. There is a piece of film of him. Oh, there is. Yeah, there is. You can see it on YouTube.
1: Hmm, not as I will as look sh- that up. Yeah, i got to yeah, look that up.
2: Wells's thin, reedy voice is uh, it's, <laughs> it's not quite fingernails on a chalkboard, but I, I know why he was so <laughs> self-effacing, and if a lot of his, well, oh, not a lot of his books, some of his books are compilations of papers that he gave, speeches that he gave, and then he later compiled them and published them, uh, and he would talk here and there about the, the the thin reedy character of his voice and how awful it was and he was very aware of his cockney accent and uh, very self-deprecating about that which is uh, I, I think it's nice that he could be that humble about it because it was true <laughs> well, it was very <laughs> he has true. a funny voice
1: <laughs> he, um, which is you know uh, I loved the way Malcolm McDowell actually portrayed him in the movie Time After Time, which I know H.G. Wells fans are split on that movie because it's science fiction hokiness. Yeah. But, you know, and we both come from, you know, researching Jack the Ripper um, murders. (laughs) So Ripperologists are split half and half on that movie. Half of them love it, half of them hate it. I think it's fantastic.
0: That's the one with David office, uh, isn't it?
1: With David Warner and uh, Malcolm McDowell. David Warner,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, that one.
1: But it's, I, so I loved it was so great, as well. Yeah,
2: I, I loved it as a kid, and you know, and as as a Wells fan, because it pulls in just enough. Fact about Wells to be, you know, to 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 have satisfied my young teenage mind when it came out. Um, And then this the back story about. I mean, David Warner is a treasure. I would watch that guy read the ingredients on a packet of crisps. I love him so much. So anything he did, yeah, you're kissing up to the UK
1: people on here. Crisps, you don't get crisps here.
2: (laughs) I do. I'm married to a European, so oh, you don't see, pay. I and thought we anyway.
1: were just kissing <laughs> up the floor.
0: No, well, you, you, we get crisps and then we get chips that are fries. Yep. Chips right. are better than crisps.
2: Yes, that is true. That is true. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's, I just love David Warner, and you know, you're both Ripperologists. I, I, maybe we should all get together and write a screenplay. I have this idea of making Joseph Merrick Jack the Ripper. That's cause, been You know, done. the time. For, kind of what oh seriously yeah
1: it's a theory yeah. that's been out there
2: oh okay i thought i thought somebody had done something like made a movie or something that i wasn't aware of because i just laughed, laughed myself silly over that idea i came up with it with a friend and we thought oh no well, but the
1: funny thing just is ex- when the theory came out the argument for it made more sense than just about any other suspect
2: <laughs> yeah right yeah because a he
1: was there
0: Yep.
1: <laughs> that's it yep. that's all you need to it's know most area. of the suspects weren't
0: oh, mm-hmm. and he also worked where the wax works were kept Yep, yep. because he'd been working that would have been a place he worked before he moved across the road because literally that place is across the road from where he ended up living
1: yeah now right? you know we had uh, did you read Joe Mungov uh, of Vo- uh, Vigers' book Joseph The Life and Times of the Elephant Man I have not came out last year, two years ago, I believe. She's the woman that actually find and ended up discovering his gravesite because they did bury parts of his flesh. Mm. But uh, we had her on discussing Joseph in detail. She's the one you should talk to about the screen. And
0: to be quite honest with you, the where the flesh is buried is not that far away from where the Ripper vi- victims, where some of the Ripper victims were buried.
1: Ooh, more to your screenplay. It, 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 it all fits.
0: It, 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 it's it's not it's not it's not too far away at all. I think it's like with it's like the plot is separated into three bits and I think it's on the same plot but in a different section.
1: And of course, you know, they say that the killer had to have been left handed and guess what? The only arm that worked for him was the left. That's
2: right. That's right. It's compelling evidence. <laughs> That's just fun. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad
0: that I'm not the only one that thought of that. Mike's gonna be so cross to you, Brian.
1: Oh, they're all gonna be so mad at me right now. The Ripperologist community right now. You remember when you said his? It's not quite fingernails on a chalkboard. Well, this was to them. Every <laughs> one of them's hair is standing up, yelling at us now.
0: Uh, yeah, we've we've just we've been um, we've been excommunicated from that society you now. <laughs>
1: Although, here's my arguments against him being the killer. <laughs> Are we really going here? <laughs> yeah. Really? He was far too weak.
0: <laughs>
1: and B, I think he would have been recognized. Yeah. Someone would have noticed.
0: And I see. I I don't think he'd have got from... He, I don't think he'd have been able to have done the distance of... The double event in the time that it took the killer to get from the first murder to the second.
1: What if he had magic powers?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm
1: just throwing it out there. It's still better than half the theories out there.
2: They make a better movie than what they're making these days, so anyway. <laughs> uh,
1: plus he was too short to be the killer, I think. I don't know what that has to do with that thing, but he was very short.
0: But not if you go with um, the recent thinking that they were on the ground in the first place.
1: He was still only like four foot eleven or so. Teeny little fella. <laughs> but, H.G. Wells.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> One, we gotta, we gotta do it. He was called
0: Jack Ripper, by yeah. the way. <laughs>
1: We, we have They're to do right. it, because the guy who actually probably would have successfully been able to do that movie would have been Orson Welles.
2: Possibly. Possibly.
1: But in 1938, you know, the Mercury Theater puts on this performance of War of the Worlds that sends the people into a panic.
2: I have something to say about that, but go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say allegedly.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Um, the myth has outgrown the truth.
0: But Oh, it's a myth. Oh, that was the best bit about it is that well, thinking about all these Americans being scared and running away.
1: I'll I'll let you speak to this, but uh there was some <laughs> panic, but not to the extent that they claim.
2: Yeah, that's right. Sociologists and historians have delved into the record of, you know, emergency services calls and there's just nothing in there to support the idea of a mass panic. Yeah, there's going to be a couple of people that freaked out and, and did weird things or things that, that they wouldn't normally do. But, you know, I remember the afternoon of 9-11, the long lines at the gas station, because everybody thought gas is going to spike and I have to fill my tank, you know, and the, and the to- run on toilet paper earlier yeah. in- I mean, there, there, there's always going to be that, but there was not a, a mass
1: panic. No, but what sold the myth is the genius of Orson Welles. Remember, he held the press conference two days later, apologizing to the world for panicking them. I'm so sorry, <laughs> I scared everybody, and it was never my intention. I thought everyone would have known this masterpiece, and it right, was never mind. My... He held a press conference for nothing. He was a showman.
2: Yeah, yeah, he he really did know how to play it to the hilt, but you know, at the time, I can see them not being entirely sure, because you know, in the fog of war. I mean, nineteen thirty-eight, it's not going to dissipate that quickly, and there could still be some question of, well, did this really happen? And you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of talk in political circles about what are we going to do about this new medium, radio, that obviously has the power to to not just inform but to um, affect. Uh, lots of people i it it i mean it went so far as as a as an historian and and uh, someone that collects on wells i mean i have newspapers from germany in 1938 that 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 reference there's a, uh, an editorial cartoon in a newspaper published by the ss that made fun of americans um uh, with a couple of aliens landing in New York and of course everybody running away looked Jewish. And the, the the line was, No, you're you're wrong, Castor. We haven't landed in America. We've landed in Palestine And so that's how far the myth permeated. There was a lot of belief that that yeah, the Americans are that stupid. They would panic about that. So I mean even throughout Germany and Hitler mentioned the, the broadcast as a uh, as an indication of the the corrupt nature of democracy and how dumb people are. Um, so when you put all of these things, all of these anecdotal bits of evidence into one big vat, then it uh, I, I can see the myth selling. And when you have a credulous media that really they're, they're not historians; they're not trained to be historians. They all they like to play at historian, but they're not. And they don't question things thoroughly. They did because obviously they're just trying to get their story done, and things just get promulgated through the decades. Yeah. And
1: Orson was the, a genius and knew how to manipulate and run the show.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, he didn't do so well later in his life. I mean, that was that that got him Citizen Kane, and, <laughs> and <laughs> Citizen
1: Kane destroyed him essentially. <laughs> yeah.
2: And, yeah, and and that was just a couple of years after War of the Worlds. Um, the fun thing about Citizen Kane is when you watch it, I mean, you are actually watching a couple of the characters that were in War of the Worlds, so that's a lot of fun for me. Um, I don't know if you knew that. I sure did. you did. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so it, that's a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, it, it <laughs> yeah, <Wells laughs> the is- Wonder ran out of gas pretty quick after that. Well,
1: Orson's mistake, and Orson Wells's mistake was that he was so arrogant and so conceited because he was so smart and a genius that he never listened to other people. Well, that don't fly in a Hollywood studio system. No, not at all. He burned all his bridges. And then, in his first film, he decides to attack, yeah, the fading giant, but still a pretty powerful media mogul.
2: Oh, yeah, Hearst, yeah. Well, And I had heard uh, an interview with Orson where he talked about his his early arrogance and he said he blamed it on his childhood he said when I was a kid he said my parents doted over me and everything I did was the greatest thing that anyone had ever seen and nobody had ever done it any better and he goes and I grew up believing this and so it wasn't healthy but that's the way I that's the way the way I was raised and so I didn't know there were limits and I didn't know that that I wasn't all that special well actually you are special, Orson. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the the fact of the matter is that that's that's one of the the elements that propelled his his uh, his ego.
1: And H. G. Wells loved it, and he loved the myth. Well, you know,
2: he did an interview. He met Orson in San Antonio in nineteen forty. And they recorded the the interview. It was a KTSA in San Antonio, and it was like about a seven minute interview. And it was Orson and Wells meeting in person for the first time. And at the time, you know, HG took a little more cautious tone. He's like, it was it, for it, it, to begin with when he heard about the broadcast, he thought. And he was quoted as saying they took some unwarranted liberties with my work, and he was clearly not happy with how Orson had presented it. But then when it had sociological implications, he warmed up to it a little bit, and he talked about in this interview, he said this is evidence that the Americans aren't really taking what's going on in Europe uh, very seriously yet. You know, also in 1938, that was when the Germans had annexed the Sudetenland, and so there were were things happening in Europe – that were very serious and inclining towards war, and over here in America, everybody's pretending to see ghosts or, or Martians, you know. And so Wells was like, "Well, it was it was great, but you know, in 1940 the war had started, and he he had a, a very he had a more serious mind about it."
1: Well, it also sold a lot of books from afterwards.
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly it would have done that. Yeah, so- I mean the. Well, it's still in print. I mean, it's, it's, it never went out of print from the day it appeared in, in 1898. Never went out of print.
1: Oh, Lauren, uh, you've heard the radio broadcast, obviously.
0: <laughs> I have. I um, I it, the first time I heard it was on. It was an extra on a special edition of Citizen Kane, it was amazing.
1: It is. It's It's, so well done. It's just.
0: It is very well done. It's very powerful as well, and it shows, you know, that even with all the special effects, if radio is done correctly, well, if audio dramas are done correctly, they have such a great power because again, you're using your imagination as if you were reading. Well, not as much as if you were reading because, you know, you have the impression of somebody else's performance. But it was just phenomenal.
1: Yeah, I'm a big radio drama guy. I am old-time radio buff. I just love it, and I listen to tons of it. And uh, I always liked the, the great actress uh, Mercedes McCambridge. Do you familiar with her? No. I'm not. No, I'm not. She um, actually won uh, several awards. Uh, she's an Oscar winner. She um, won all kinds of radio drama awards. She won Tony awards. She was just one of the most decorated actresses. A lot of people remember her for very late in life. She was the voice of the demon and the exorcist. <laughs> okay. Um, brought her out of retirement, made her chain-smoke cigarettes, eat raw eggs, and drink booze to get her voice all <sighs> raspy like that.
0: And she was tied to a chair, I think, as well. Yes.
1: But that was Mercedes yeah. McCambridge. But I saw an interview with her, and they were talking about, you know, she's been in every form of entertainment, every form of medium, film, television, stage, radio. And she said, which is the best? And she says, without question, radio. Because when you listen to a radio show, you're the set director. You're the cinematographer. You're the lighting man. You're the cameraman. It's all in your mind. And Wells knew that and hg wells i think could appreciate his work being done that way
2: i think he would have if it had stayed true to the, the his, his his propaganda message uh, i think that he appreciated the fact that it kept him in the public public eye but you know this the orson wells broadcast came on the heels of, of things to come and in the middle of the, a run up to and a, a war and you know, and it was a war that it had affected him deeply. He was living at, at Hanover Terrace, I believe, at, uh, during the war. And when all the other rich people in London were heading out to their country estates, Wells was still there, he had, his, he had his front door blown in a couple of times by V2s that had landed oh. not far away. And he walked fire patrol. I mean, he's an old man, he's nearly eighty and he's still out doing it because it was just he's like, I'm not gonna give in to the Germans and I'm not gonna be like these these rich goobers that just the first sign of trouble they head out to their estates. He was gonna be different. And so he had a very serious and sober mind at the time, so um yeah, I mean I can't crawl into that mind obviously, but that's based on, you know, his his writings in in the forties that were becoming at least seemed to be coming more pessimistic. Uh, and almost like, okay, I give up. Well, because um, he
1: became the stereotypical bitter old man,
2: and and because you know, like he, like he once said, "Damn you all! I told you so."
1: Yeah. So we yeah. are approaching the hour mark rapidly. So yes. I have to ask a couple more questions. Okay. Oh. <laughs> One. Oh dear. Pluto, is it a planet oh, or no?
0: My. Every not, time. Not, according,
1: not according
2: to the IAU. And I accept their definition.
1: Oh, all right. I am still hashtag pro planet Pluto all the way. We
2: start, if we, if we approve Pluto and you know, the definition can change over time. I mean, that's the thing it's, it's changed up to this point, but, uh, you know, I, I accept it. It's, it's sad for Percival Lowell, yeah, very, very sad. I'll tell you but, right now, um,
1: Wells would have wanted it to be a planet.
2: Wells would have wanted to stick with the, the definition. Yeah. <laughs> he, he absolutely would have. He's like, well, this is the definition. And, um, yeah, I mean, Ceres, is that is that a, is that a planet? I mean, yeah, no, probably not. No, and I mean, <laughs> we all
1: know the only planet he would have really given a crap about her was uh, was Venus. Why Herbert, is that? Herbert liked the ladies.
2: Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. A lot. And I don't mean he liked the ladies a lot. I mean he liked a lot of ladies.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. It's pretty successful, too. Yeah. I don't get it. (laughs) Well, no one did, but... uh, and, And even he himself was a little transfixed as to how some short, fat guy with a thin, reedy voice could pull the birds, as they say, but he, Brian Aldis did an interview uh, some years ago where he had a bit of trivia and he said, uh, the, the women that, that flocked to Wells reported that he smelled of honey. <laughs> like, well, okay. Maybe at the time that was, uh, an attractive scent. I don't know. But see, that Lord,
1: that's why Brian I don't Al- succeed. Cause I smell like Duff's chicken wings. Yeah. Yeah, if, if yeah. If you smell like you, for a wild wings, it's probably not gonna work.
0: And you keep asking people questions like, Is Pluto a planet, even though you have heard enough times what you wanted to hear? Even from Lawrence Krauss.
1: Yeah, we had Brian. Lawrence Krauss on who told us it was a planet. <laughs> really? Yeah.
0: yeah. So this is so this is bordering on an obsession now, oh, Brent.
1: Beyond beyond bordering. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, remember, even within the astronomy community, there can be strident disagreement. I mean, remember Fred Hoyle was going on about the steady state theory well into after the the Big Bang was basically accepted by everyone. So, you know, there, there can be disagreement within the community.
1: But I want to know why H.G. Wells never wrote a book called The Big Bang.
2: I'm sorry. <laughs> Well it wasn't a thing at that point I mean May, he would have had to coin the term I mean certainly he coined other terms like atomic bomb.
1: Well I was still talking about and, his love life
2: Yeah well yeah, that, that that would have been the context for it too and then I assume we would have come up with a different name for uh, the cosmological idea
1: Oh, I don't know why it just amuses me so much that he was such a ladies man
0: Because you're better <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well that That being a ladies' man came at a price. I mean, if you read what's said about it, no. And there was a lot of psychological guilt, especially after Jane contracted cancer and died. I mean, there was a lot of guilt. Um, And, you know, he was constantly chasing this lover shadow idea. I've got to find the right woman. She's got to be out there. And so he would go through all these women that, honestly, most of them just threw themselves at him because, you know, there's the star power there. Who wouldn't want to be with H. G. Wells? And you know, from from Maxim Gorky's assistant Moira Budberg to to um, uh, Hemingway's um, uh, Martha G- uh, Gellhorn. I mean, he just he was able to pull pull them all over. And um, for him, he was looking for this so-called lover's shadow, uh, but it came at a price because he knew that he had he hurt a lot of people along the way for his own. You know, let's just say it for his own, his own selfish desires, um, and there was a lot of regret towards the end of his life about the what he had done to people.
1: All right, now I have two more questions before I let you off the hook here. I promise they're not about Pluto. <laughs> One is for our listeners out there who really aren't that. Fr- See, Lauren thought I was going to ask something else. Ha <laughs> ha.
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah.
1: Um, for for the listeners out there who aren't that familiar with Wells's body of work, other than maybe War of the Worlds or Time Machine, what recommendations would you give to new Wells readers? What to uh, what to start with? What to really wet their appetite with?
2: Mm. Well, my second favorite is Island of Doctor Moreau, right after War of the Worlds. Uh, but that, that's that one's a bit obscure. And uh, perhaps a little bit bloody. Um, I think I, I really like later works like Star Begotten and *The Croquet Player*, uh, which are um, uh *When the Sleeper Wakes* is 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 excellent, especially for people that will that identify Wells as, as a utopian. When the Sleeper Wakes is great um uh First Man in the moon is probably the easiest one to get through uh, and and still has a lot of Wellsism mixed up in it and you can enjoy it as an adventure or you can dig into it um, and and pull even more out of it but uh, those those especially I think uh, are are rather good. He did a lot of short stories too that I, I think are are fantastic. Um, the sea and the wonderful visit. Uh, wonderful visit was one of his very earliest works, and it's not long. It's about an angel that comes to Earth, but it's not an angel like we think of in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, it's just it's it's a fascinating work that that is that deals with old England. And uh, the way things were, and you know, the undercurrent of a lot of Wells' early fiction was anti uh, the Victorian Empire. He wanted he wanted that rotten empire to collapse. Uh, so he saw that as as an impediment to world peace, just the same as he saw the House of the Hohenzollern in, in Germany. And so that's why so much of 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 his fiction has this destruction of a of a society whether it's a microcosm like the island of Dr Moreau or whether it's the british empire and the war of the worlds there's this idea that something needs to come in and topple this current social order so we can rebuild something new um and uh, so i don't know what my point with all that was but um, <laughs> yeah that's that's the the the, the 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 short stories are fantastic and there are a lot of uh, compilations of short stories you can find them online now too um that uh, to dig into like uh, i think slip under the microscope and uh, the sea raiders um a moonlight fable i mean they're very easy to get through in the matter of like 20 minutes and uh they're just fantastic little stories and there, there may or may not be sociological undercurrents in them um it doesn't matter they're great
1: Thank you so much. And, yes, and please, The last question I have. Well, other than Lauren, Lauren, do you have <clears> any <throat> questions?
0: Um, not that I can think of, unfortunately.
1: Well, I want to know if you will agree to come back on the show. We can go far more in depth on some, uh, some of his works at some point. Yes.
0: That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to.
1: Everybody. It's HG Wells society. You got to check out Charles page. It's HG Wells com, All one word. And, uh, it's an amazing resource. It's a great page. Everyone should check it out and, you know, think about joining the society.
2: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The benefits are, are manyfold. We, we publish a journal once a year. It's peer-reviewed. It represents the cutting edge of Wells Scholarship today.
1: And I know me and Lorne are both going into that now. So
0: We are indeed, yes.
1: Charles, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. Have a great night.
0: You too. Thank you. you. Good night. Bye bye.
1: Ah, oh, Lauren, what did you think?
0: That was fantastic.
1: I knew you'd love H. G. Wells, and I, I reached out to the society and uh, got him to send an American.
0: <laughs> well, is that was that your um, prerequisite? Please actually, send an American.
1: Actually, I was just a pleasant surprise. Usually, you mm. you uh, you on that side have me outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs>
0: We still do have you outnumbered. You just got lucky this time.
1: We do, yeah. Now, get this. We have another recording in just two days.
0: We do indeed. Very looking forward to this one.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be great. It's a surprise. I'm not gonna release any information yet, folks. But it's gonna be a it's gonna be um let's just say a very thought provoking episode.
0: Yeah, and I think it's going to touch upon many aspects of many interest, because it's something that is a very, it, it it dominates history even today.
1: So, on that note, I believe we should call this a night. We should indeed, we should call this an episode. All right, so, from Brian in the great boiling hot state of New York.
0: And... From Lauren in Rainy Swansea. Good night. Good night. The dead don't travel so fast when they're a bobblehead.